This episode of Radio Vet Nurse was proudly brought to you by Zilkeen. Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast with your host, Kat Robinson. You're listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast for vet nurses where we tell our story. I'm your host, Kat Robinson. Vet nursing can be a tough gig, and yet we absolutely love it. So when it comes to vet nurses, who are we? How do we achieve greatness? How do we cope with the more challenging parts of our job? Radio Vet Nurse is our way to start a dialogue around these questions and to create a space where we can tell our story. Each episode, you'll hear from a different vet nurse about their personal experiences in life and in vet nursing. In this episode, I went to Melbourne and had the absolute pleasure of meeting Carol Bradley. From humble beginnings as a kennel maid in 1973, Carol worked all the way up to her current role teaching and training vet students at the University of Melbourne. Carol is a tutor in small animal surgery and the Veterinary Skills Centre manager and nurse educator. When it comes to teaching vet students, Carol's also responsible for lectures and practical class supervision in the surgical discipline with a focus on aseptic and operating room technique, instruments, biomaterials, suture technique, the sterilising process and approach to basic surgical procedures. In Carol's career, she's been a bit of a trailblazer in raising standards in veterinary surgical nursing, including being the first vet nurse to gain her qualification in cleaning, disinfecting and sterilisation at the human hospital standard. She was also the first vet nurse to be given an academic position in the Faculty of Veterinary and Agricultural Sciences at Uni of Melbourne. Carol's a popular speaker on the veterinary circuit, has a long list of publications, and even invented the Bradley cat lap drape. Carol loves innovation. She's a great advocate for vet nurses and for lifelong learning, currently studying a postgrad certificate in infection prevention and control through Griffith Uni. Not only was Carol just a delight to meet and interview, she also shared a lot of really useful and practical evidence-based information. We've already made improvements at ReadyVet on the basis of what Carol had to say. As always, I've tried to put links in the show notes to everything we discussed, so if you find yourself frantically reaching for your pen, head to RadioVetNurse.com and check the show notes for this episode. Hi Carol, welcome to Radio Vet Nurse. Oh, thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. We are in sunny Melbourne. It is a sunny Melbourne day today. Isn't it? It's beautiful. It's not too hot either. It's not too hot. So it's really nice to be down in Melbourne um, and catching up with Carol, who has um, a really amazing um, career. I'm just looking at her biography here, but we're just going to ease into that because it truly is um, a a very extensive um, career. So to kick off, do you listen to podcasts? If yes, what are some of your favourites? Well, Kat, I have to admit, I don't really listen to podcasts. I'm too busy researching and studying. Yeah. So the first podcast I heard was yours. That's good. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's great. Good. It was fabulous. It really interested me. Yeah, good, good. Well, mm. that that's good. And and as I was saying to you earlier, it is it is hard to find time to listen to podcasts um, when you are doing research and work at night and that sort of thing. It's more when you're when you're someone like me who's like, I need something to do while I play blocks with my one year old. <laughs> but they are nice to plug in while you catch a plane or go for a walk or something. So well, yeah. you've you've taught me something, Cat, which is great. There we go. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> and can you tell me where are you from and where do you currently live? Okay, so I'm from Hoppers Crossing. Mm-hmm. I've lived there for probably 30 years now. Yeah. Uh, I live there because I'm close to the Faculty of uh, Veterinary Science yeah. and um, enjoy that. Um, 
Are you always from Melbourne? No. Um, actually, I was born in Scotland. I thought you had a bit of an accent. Yes, I've lost most of it. But yes, I was born in Scotland. Yep. We were 10-pound poms. Yep. And my parents wanted us to have a better life. Mm-hmm. So we came to Australia on 10-pound and we started off in South Australia. Then we moved to Victoria. And my father was in the Air Force, mm. so we moved around a lot. Mm. But I was actually um, educated in Laverton, which is in the west of Melbourne, mm-hmm. and doesn't really have a great um, reputation. Mm-hmm. However, it did well for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, having said that, I left in year 10, which yep. used to be called Form 4, mm-hmm. um, and then I was supposedly went to business college. Yeah. Yeah. I, t- I told my mother I want to be a veterinarian and she said, I'm sorry, darling, I don't think you've got enough brains. Oh, no. Mm, I know. But it was a very long, long time ago. The, yeah. That was that was how it was done. Your girls went to business college. She thought she was doing a favour for you. but Absolutely. But I found a way around it. You did find a way around it. And, and that links nicely to my next question of how did you get your foot in the door with vet nursing? Okay. So... Living in Laverton, Werribee was very, very close. And, mm-hmm. and we used to have an old uh, newspaper in those days. And mm-hmm. they advertised for a young girl to come on weekends and clean the kennels. Mm-hmm. Uh, effectively a kennel maid. Yep. So it was rather a stroke of luck because the name they drew out of the hat was someone else. But the supervisor accidentally called me. <laughs> so whilst I was at college, I was um, cleaning kennels on the weekend mm-hmm. and getting my foot in the door mm-hmm. of just being around animals. Yeah, right. So they drew a name out of the hat. They to, did. To choose. They That's did. very egalitarian. Indeed. You know, we're talking 1973. Yeah. Mm. That's really sweet. Oh, mm. we can't choose. They're all great. Let's just make it a lottery. That's basically what they did. Mm. And as I said, there was an error in the phone numbers. Yeah. Uh, but fortunately, the supervisor was Scottish and my father obviously was Scottish. They hit it off wonderfully yeah. and uh, she gave me a go. So that was, that was a wonderful start. Meant to be. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And so that – I'd like to just jump to my next question and then we'll fill in the gaps because I just love that you started as a kennel maid. Yes. And then I love knowing where you are now and I'll let you answer that. Where do you currently work? What's your role and what do you do from day to day? Okay, so I work for the University of Melbourne, the Faculty of Veterinary and Agricultural Sciences. Um, my day-to-day role is I'm a surgical tutor as well as a clinical skills centre manager. So I teach into the second, third and final year DVM. Mm-hmm. And um, any given day it could be a surgical practical class, introducing mm-hmm. asepsis, instrument sterilization, um, how to put an anesthetic machine. And those are the formal classes. Then I lecture on asepsis and mm-hmm. surgical biomaterials and instruments, things mm-hmm. like that. And with the clinical skills, um, the students have a 24-hour drop-in uh, situation. They can come anytime and basically pick my brains. Oh, wow. So um, I'm there as often as I can mm-hmm. overnight. Obviously, I do try to go home to bed. It <laughs> doesn't always happen. Um, and the students uh, have to do uh, what we call a hurdle exam with me in their final, or oh, sorry, their third year. Mm-hmm. And if they don't pass that, unfortunately, they don't pass the year. Wow. So it's pretty heavy for them and it's their first oral exams. Mm-hmm. So they're very, very nervous. So mm. I play the big mother type of, you know, soft shoulder That's and get good. them through it. That's nice. Mm. And the students we're talking about are like future vets. Yes, we are. Which is great. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just to clarify, the third years are actually coming mm. from Parkville, which is preclinical. Right. Werribee is postclinical. Well, clinical, I should say. Mm-hmm. And 
it's a transition from their didactic learning mm-hmm. into their clinical reasoning. Yeah. So it's my role to start the ball rolling on their clinical reasoning mm-hmm. and being able to do uh, their tasks in the small animal surgery section or into the large animal surgery section in the UVet hospital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it only a four-year qualification at Uni of, Uni of Melbourne? It is, but it's a postgraduate degree. Oh, okay. So they've got to have an undergrad. And does it have to be a science undergrad? Um, I think uh, that is always useful, but they yeah. will consider others who, who fit the criteria. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we have quite a variety of students. In fact, mm-hmm. I have a final year student at the moment. When she first came to me, she came from brain research, mm. uh, quite fascinating people they're Mm. so talented Mm -hmm. I think it's great to have these uh, degrees as um, postgrads because otherwise you can graduate quite young and knowing vet medicine inside and out is one thing but you don't practice vet medicine in a vacuum exactly you practice it with humans who come with their own baggage and their own financial situations and their own quirks and um, animals who live in different geographic regions and you know, there are so many considerations beyond the textbook kind of oh, hypothetical. Yeah. So Yeah, so what I try and do, particularly with the, with the third years, is that all the tasks that nurses do so well and brilliantly, mm-hmm. um, that's the sort of thing that they need, the students need to know. Mm. So I just really transfer that knowledge to them, but obviously with a m- much more depth to the education because mm. it has to be um, evidence-based. Yeah. Um, but really, uh, the tasks that the nurses do and the um, students who are learning these tasks, it's all the hands-on things, are, mm-hmm. you know, a hand-eye coordination, things like that, and mm. thinking outside the circle. So that's what they have to learn. Mm. And I know that sometimes when they go out to practice on placement, some nurses may think, oh, they don't know anything. Mm. However, they have crammed in so much over the years and they have... Uh, classes say in surgery in one mm. month and it won't be another three months before they do it again mm. so it's really hard to keep those skills up without mm-hmm. repetitive um, learning yeah and it is really important for nurses with lots of experience and lots of training to sort of help um, those new grad vets as they come uh, out senior nurses are key to the development of mm. young new graduates yeah um, and often I say to them if you follow what your senior nurse is uh, trying to help you with or teach you, mm. take it on board and make them your best friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And it sounds like you're wearing a lot of different hats and doing a lot of different things. To you, mm. what's the best part of your job? Oh, the best part of my job is actually seeing a student that I've taught how to actually scrub their hands and arms, which is very simplistic, of course, but yeah. the students ooh and ah when I show them how to, you know, um, close glove and you know, snap the gloves on and things like that. <laughs> And they say they'll never be able to do that. But then I get them to a point where they're doing live surgery. Yeah. And we actually spay and castrate for the Geelong Animal Welfare oh, Centre. lovely. So that then they can be adopted. We do that mm-hmm. free of charge. Yeah. Obviously, the, the trade-off is that the students get to do it with mm-hmm. one of us scrubbed in yeah. always. But to see their happiness after they've completed a surgery or yeah. an anesthesia yeah. uh, case is just wonderful. It, yeah. it, it still gives me goosebumps to this day. Yeah, it mm. is nice. And yep. I can see the joy coming off these students because as I was saying to you before, we just had a Uni of Melbourne um, vet student. He's about to start fourth year and I think he might have done a spay with us. We had a list of what ideally he could be practicing doing mm-hmm. or, you know, on his own but with another vet there and he was just so pumped you know, yeah. after he got to do so that. It gets and- so excited. Excited. Yeah. Third year for them, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. And they can see this is what they're 
this is what the things they are going to do. They've had all mm. that underpinning didactic information mm. and now they're going to do things yeah. and doing things. As we all know, um, learning is very much in different styles. Mm. So the learning style of um you know, just doing yeah. and, di- you know, not so much didactic yeah. really gets them buzzed. Yeah, that's it. And I still remember even when I was learnt, doing my Cert 4 and learning how to set up IV fluids or something like that or do closed glove gowning, you know, you'd watch the videos and watch the slides and think this will be easy. And I'd say to Matt, I'm ready to record my video. And <laughs> he'd say, just practice it with the real thing first. And I'd be like, no, yeah. no, it's fine. I've watched this. It's easy. And he'd go, just have a go. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then I'd be like, help. Matt. I know. <laughs> and closed gloving is one of those things that it looks difficult to do yeah. and and uh, it can be a wee bit difficult, but it is a superior gloving technique. Yeah. Uh, certainly way back when I started, everybody did the open glove technique. Yeah. And so th- the chances of uh, contamination was very, very high. Yeah. Um, so uh, third year students tend to think, wow, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I say to them, in six months' time, you'll be doing this without thinking about it. Yeah. And when that happens, the light bulb's gone off and that is just a wonderful, yeah. wonderful thing to see. Yeah. They're lovely kids. Yeah, they are. Mm. Definitely. We, we enjoyed having um, uh, having a Uni of Melbourne student and we would welcome any more who would mm. like to come. Um, and what's your routine when you wake up in the morning, Carol? How do you set yourself up for the day? Okay. So when I set myself up for the day, I turn the alarm off at least three times. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I get up. I have two children, of course. And yeah. um, so I get up and make sure that they are also up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I proceed to feed my three dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I slowly will have, you know, a little bit of breakfast, mm-hmm. uh, not too much, um, trying to lose a little bit of weight. <laughs> uh, and then um, off to work, drop my son off at school, yeah. race out to work, mm-hmm. get everything started. Uh, depending on the class I'm having, I may not have had any time the day beforehand mm-hmm. to actually set up an entire 10-table operating mm-hmm. uh, scenario. Yeah. Um, so that takes a bit of work. You've got to race around and get all your equipment and materials yeah um and then i have to have maybe 15 minutes for a bit of lunch yeah and then we start our teaching yeah so we just roam around and say right we need to do this this get Mm -hmm. this organized so i'm very linear and so uh for me the students need that Mm -hmm. they need that linear um uh i guess pattern and it actually gives them a little bit of um space to think about what they have to do because it is in order yeah I give them lots of information uh other mornings I will get up and I'll go to work and then I'll just sit there and write and rewrite lectures or I may study or I may have meeting after meeting discussing Mm -hmm. how we're going to teach Mm -hmm. what can we improve on Mm -hmm. um if I'm doing a conference I may be writing conference notes or I may be getting prepared for um uh I do a lot of freebie uh, workshops and tutorials mm-hmm. for the students in my lunchtime. Mm-hmm. So I may be preparing for that as well. Oh, that's so it's so pretty nice full on. Yeah, mm. really full on. And I think we should probably start bridging the gap of how you got mm. from Kennel Maid to what you're doing now because yeah. it's a it's a long 43-year career that yes, <laughs> it is. we're going to have to just gloss over some of the highlights of how you got there because I'm mm. sure people listening, particularly people who might be working as kennel hands yes. at the moment, will be like, how? but how? Yes, but how? Yes. <laughs> what happened? How did she get there? So <laughs> if I can just gloss over. So you were 
working as a kennel maid in the small animal wards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to ask, you were looking after exotic animals. What, yes. Why were there lion cubs and yeah. like... Well, back in the day, there wasn't there wasn't any exotic veterinarians. Yeah. So we used to be able to, well, we shouldn't say we used to be able to, we were always the assigned person or hospital, I should say, uh, that received exotics. Mm-hmm. So I used to take care of Ward 5, which had all the strays and all the student teaching animals. And I also received the um, exotics, yeah. kangaroos, meerkats, mm-hmm. um, marmosets, mm-hmm. an eagle, mm-hmm. um, koalas, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. And the lion cubs came from uh, Silver Circus, yeah. and they weren't doing so well, so oh. we had to hand feed them for a little bit. Yeah. And koalas. So that was just how it was back then. So we're talking before the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we now have um, groups that would take these animals on in a better yeah. way, and we also have exotic clinicians that will also do that. So yes. we no longer do it quite as much. But mm. I've been lucky enough when we have a zoo animal that is needing some sort of surgery, mm-hmm. generally I go out to Melbourne Zoo or Werribee Zoo mm-hmm. and assist the surgeons wow. in what they have to do, particularly when it's endoscopy. Yeah, that's really exciting. So, mm. And that that's such a broad um, range of husbandry requirements and everything like that. So yes. you must have had to know a lot of different, um, you know, ways yeah. of looking after different patients. Yes. And then um, so you, if we can then jump to... In 1981, you were offered a full-time role um, and you were in the small animal surgical ward and you were learning on the job. You completed your certificate, which at that time was called an animal auxiliary certificate. Yes. (laughs) And then this is where it gets a bit crazy. In 1983, you transferred to the hospital's Central Sterilising Service Department, CSSD, Mm -hmm. and the operating theatres in a junior position to train. And by the end of the same year, Mm -hmm. your like training year, you were appointed head of CSSD and supervisor of the small and large animal operating theatres. So, And then you continued... managing CSSD for the next 25 years. So right. did you just put your head down and bum up and get basically promoted or like? Yeah. Well, I think a little bit of luck, obviously. Yeah. Um, the the previous manager was an old army matron mm-hmm. who was a little bit unhappy in the role mm-hmm. and um, just walked out oh, no. and there wasn't anyone else. So uh, they decided to give me a go because yeah. they felt that I had the drive and ambition to give mm-hmm. it a go. Mm-hmm. So I was on probation for a while. Mm-hmm. So I put my head down, my bum up, mm-hmm. and I read everything I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. I had to look to the human um, mm-hmm. field, though, so mm-hmm. the human nursing field. Mm. And I took a lot of cues from that yeah. and introduced them to uh, the veterinary school. And there were some things that I guess was common sense for me. You mm-hmm. know, we needed to streamline, we needed more staff, we yeah. needed to know, well, half the time nurses didn't even know what a myelogram was, what's a fenestration, what's mm. what's a polysystemic shunt. Mm-hmm. So I started educating myself in all those ways. Mm-hmm. So I'm very self-driven mm-hmm. and I don't like not knowing something. Mm. Uh, so they took a chance on me mm-hmm. and... I was very grateful that they took that chance mm-hmm. and it's been going on ever since then. I think that's a great example for other nurses to hear about because if you get given a chance like that, you can't just wait to be spoon-fed. No, you can't. You no. really have to be going home, reading up, what short yeah. courses can I take, what yes. books can I buy and, you know, all yeah. of the best nurses that I speak to, they go home and they, they listen to a podcast or they read up or they, you know, yep. continually educating themselves, not just going, I haven't been trained well enough to do my job. 
Yeah, oh, you're so right, Kat. Mm. Um, I keep saying to nurses that I speak to or I'm teaching that, you know, it is an evidence-based um, science that we are doing and we ought to back everything up with evidence. Mm. And so go out and look for that evidence mm. and go out and look for what's available. And I was warmly embraced by the human nursing fraternity. So mm. I used to go to orthopedic classes, um, sterilising classes, and very much embraced. And even though I felt... Um, a bit out of place. Mm-hmm. I was on my own. It was, you know, and I'm quite a shy person. So mm. to put myself in that situation was very challenging. Mm. But I learnt a lot. Mm. And so, yeah, I don't think you can just come in and say, "Okay, I'm just going to be a nurse now and just do what I do each day." Mm. You continually have to. Uh, work at it and and I believe greatly in lifelong learning. Mm, me too, mm. absolutely. And I think uh, we could better support nurses in practice too by offering the same um, CPD opportunities that we do to our vets and absolutely. even offering nurses who've been employed for a long time to have that paid for mm. by, by the boss as a, you know, to show their appreciation. Absolutely. And that's something too that I think with the launch of the AVNAT scheme, the, registra- mm. the voluntary registration, I think we will be required to do CPD. So, yeah, it's really... I think that's great. Yeah, good to identify an area that you're interested in. and um, But even when you've had an unusual case, you know, you haven't had a GDV for a while and you have one, you do your best nursing, and mm-hmm. but you go home that night and you're still going to have that patient the next day, go get your textbook. Exactly. Look it up. Technology is changing. Try and stay ahead. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've moved to minimally invasive surgeries. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's not a lot out there these days, but when we started doing these, I went out and educated myself on, well, what's the instrumentation? What's the... What's the values? Mm-hmm. Um, how would we, you know, instigate this in, into our operating theatre? Mm. And how do I reduce the enormous cost mm. that it takes to actually do these mm. and train the nurses at the same time yeah. to actually know what all the um, the devices meant? So mm. you know, we've changed an awful lot since I first started. Yeah, yeah, and so that's kind of your. Your bag, I guess, is mm. um, <laughs> sterilizing and aseptic technique and that sort of thing. Mm. You also um, were a bit of a pioneer for vet nurses. You were, I mean, you were raising the standards in veterinary surgical nursing. Part of the way you were doing that was by attending human nursing tutorials and trying to raise standards. You also were the first vet nurse to apply and pass the certificate three in health sterilizing for technicians. Yes. Um, and um, it it enabled you to make um, the teaching hospital be the first to align with human hospital standards. Yes. Um, so that's amazing. And then also you introduced um, vet nurses uh, catheterizing patients. That's is that right. correct? That's so, right. And so obviously you have nurses working within the teaching hospital. Yes. And prior to that, was it just, no, this is something that vets do? And that's right. So all the vets used to do it. And, of course, their time frame or their working lives were getting so busy, you know, the animal would be put into back of house, into mm-hmm. a ward, and then they'd have to wait until the, you know, the clinician was finished in their consult mm-hmm. and then put in IV catheters. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was a job that I could see that nurses ought to do. And mm-hmm. I think my feelings back then were, Nurses need to be able to add value. Mm. Now, how can we add value? And for me to approach management was, well, if we teach our nurses how to do IV cannulation, then we're adding value for the clinicians to do the things that's very important at the front of house. Mm. And we're back of house. There was a little bit of resistance. Mm. However, now no animal gets uh, an IV catheter placed by a clinician. Mm. In fact, they will ask our nurses to do it because they're no good at it. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it, when you think how much 
um, nurses in the human medical world do for doctors who basically just come around when they're doing rounds or they'll see mm. the patient before surgery. But the nurse is really doing a lot of practical things and mm. there is a huge variation I know in the vet nursing world of, you know, some nurses are doing all prepping and intubating but other nurses are just, you know, basically still being um, pretty much kennel kennel hands um, yes. and which is fine as well it totally depends on the makeup of the practice and um, the, the the level of training and skill but I think that I've talked about this with a lot of guests it mm. is ultimately about the trust and that's what you have even said with yes. with I can't even remember what year this was that you introduced this and we might it might be hard it would have been in the 90s at some point wasn't yes, it so it would definitely be, oh no actually it might have been in the 80s, in the to 80s be honest with you. Right. yeah and so it was unheard of yeah. nurses actually putting in IV catheters yeah and I even had some nurses um take offense for me to actually add to their workloads really they didn't see that this mm. was a, a, a you know a value-adding mm. task that uh, will allow them to be a little bit more technical in their roles rather than just cleaning kennels, feeding dogs, yeah. exercising and cleaning the consult rooms. Yeah. So, you know, and then from that we've now got nurses doing TPRs. And, mm. um, so, yeah, it's, it's come off all that. Yeah. Um, but I believe the next frontier, and this is what I'm working on now, the next frontier is for um, vet nurses to actually do suture. Suture, and they do in the UK, don't they? They do. Yeah. So, so yeah, I started that um, several years ago for the AVNA. I did mm-hmm. the first. Um, conference for them yep. on nurses. I told them that they had to do just skin sutures, mm-hmm. but I did show them and and let them practice other types of suturing a little yeah. bit deeper in layers. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the next frontier for nurses to add value. And it really would if you can imagine a practice that has two um, two operating tables or two surgeries. Yep. Even if you've only got one vet or one vet's consulting and one's in surgery, mm. they can basically just get to the point where the that where they're up to closing mm. and then scrub in and go into the next room. And Absolutely. Potentially, the patient would already be even. Um, off the anaesthetic as well. And Absolutely. Yeah. Alternatively, um, you often will have a very worried client waiting mm-hmm. to hear how their patient or how their baby has gone. So if a nurse is actually just doing the skin sutures, um, the clinician can actually go out, make a phone call, say, Bobby's doing quite well. Mm-hmm. We're just about to wake him up. We're very happy with him. Yeah. You know, you've you've actually created a good relationship with your client mm. and the nurse is actually finishing off. Yeah. Um, and obviously we will need to get the trust of our veterinarians that yes. nurses can suture. Yes. Um, and we will always get people putting hands up saying, no, that's the vet's job. They're taking all our, you know, our tasks. But yeah. I see that as a value add yeah. that will allow clinicians to have more time to do the things they, they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean... <laughs> And part of my brain goes, oh, but suture, it can all fall apart. And there's so many considerations with tension. But it is just all about educating and Absolutely. training. Absolutely. I mean, these vets learn how to do it. They were, they were taught how to do it. It's a practical mm. skill. It's, you know, as you say, evidence-based. And yes. you do need to learn. You can't just look at every patient and go, well, this is the same as the last one I stitched up. Yep. You have to have yeah. an understanding of where you are suturing. and What pattern and why are you choosing that pattern? Yeah. Um, I made a DVD in 2013 on nurses doing suturing. Mm-hmm. Did it on my kitchen table, as I do a lot of things. <laughs> and that was very well received. Mm-hmm. I, I need to update it. But um, when I did do the suturing, I think I've done at least three sessions with, in conferences. Mm-hmm. Very well received. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do Wangaratta TAFE as well. So mm-hmm. I've introduced them to suturing as well. Cool. And once they, the other aspect of it, 
um, Kat, is that when they do that, they can actually appreciate what the surgeon's doing. Mm. Some nurses can stand back and go, wish they'd hurry up. Mm. You know, why is it taking so long just to suture? Mm. There are considerations that will slow that process down. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's a recognition between the two that, oh, okay, well, this is why. Mm but we're also adding value to Mm. the business as a whole. Mm. And I think speaking as someone who is in a rural location, Mm. it it would be so great for so many vets who are operating in, you know, just one or two or three vet practices and Mm. they're so busy. um, There's a lot of pressure. There's also also the issue that it can be difficult to find qualified nurses in these regional and remote areas. But if we can get qualified nurses in these locations, even if it means bosses helping to put people through their studies mm. then that would greatly take the relief off like these vets could go and eat lunch which well, half of them don't exactly lunch is a great thing I, I can't over you know emphasize that lunch is a wonderful thing to have yeah. which most clinicians and nurses don't get yeah. but yeah you're quite right that they would have the opportunity to have a, a break at least mm. um, and then the nurse is actually feeling really part of the team when they yeah. do the suturing yeah. um, and adding you know technical value as well yeah and really important that the nurses in rural areas can um, can Definitely. put an IV catheter in as well because so often the vet might be out seeing a down cow or something. He's 15, 20 minutes away and if you get a brown snake patient that's crashing, mm-hmm. you need to be able to. It's yep. funny too that we say um, catheter and yep. then you would know from the human nursing world they say cannula and you said yep. IV cannulation. And yes. When we say that to someone who's um, a human medico, they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Catheter and they obviously yep. think you're just speaking about a urinary catheter. But we're exactly. Like, oh, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's IV. It's, yeah. it's, uh, I interchange. I often speak yeah. about cannulations because, of course, they're different sites, of course, and yeah. uh, and sometimes if I'm talking That's to it. a vet student or a nurse, I'll talk about catheters and cephalic, mm. you know, putting mm. a catheter in the cephalic vessel. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of similarity, but there's a little bit of slightly different language. Yes, mm. yes, but you always get a look from a doctor like, what? <laughs> what were you doing with a, with a catheter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, what weekly or daily habit makes your life better? Weekly or daily habit? I'm not quite sure I should um, um, confess to this. Um, I guess I do look forward to having a glass of wine. Nice. <laughs> Always love a glass of wine. Yes. And then I love spending time with my children. Yeah. Um, despite their ages, they still come out and give me hugs and kisses and say, how yeah. are you, Mama? And, and that's really lovely. And nice. I spend time with my wife. And Lovely. Um, it's, it's nice just to be at home. Uh, but... Yeah, my downtimes are trying to play guitar. Yeah. Um, and um, work. I do work mostly on the weekends as well. It's very yeah. hard for me not to sit and do research or look at the studies I'm doing or, mm. you know, improve my lectures or improve uh, my notes for veterinary nurses and things mm. like that. So I'm very rarely not working on the weekend, but mm. I, I also moonlight for um, human surgeons on Saturdays. Oh. And... Um, they're being taught how to do minimally invasive surgery. Yeah. So I facilitate those. Wow. And um, because I have, um, I'm lucky enough to have extensive knowledge on endoscopy, uh, they do ask for my opinion on how would they get that? How are they going to get that port in? Is that the peritoneum? And they mm-hmm. use different um, uh, descriptors of what we do. And, I, mm-hmm. and they say, oh, well, I want to see the appendix. And I'll say, well, Good luck with that because in a pig, these are uh, cadavers, of course, uh, in a pig, the the appendix is virtually um, 
minuscule and it's very difficult to find so it's it's very interesting so you know i, I work six days a week yeah um and but i i network with human surgeons as well and it sounds like you enjoy it though like i do yeah i'm a glutton for punishment yeah. you know i I'm, can relate i'm getting a little bit older and i'm thinking you know i should cut back a bit but um I just can't say no. And there's a different way you can work at home, at Mm. night and on the weekends that you can't work when, you know, someone can walk through the door and ask you a question at any minute too. So there's a different level that you can get your brain into. We can really be creative and focused now, so let's go. And it is enjoyable. My office in the clinical skills, for instance, is all glass walls. So despite even if I look very busy, students will knock on my door. Um, So it's very hard to actually just be in the moment and mm. focused on what I'm doing. Yeah. So I do do work from home. I'm, I am lucky enough that I can choose when and where I'll work, mm. except for timetable teaching that I must do. Mm. Um, I can actually go and be at home mm-hmm. and particularly handy for when my son's on school holidays. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The University of Melbourne is very um, generous with those sorts of things. Yeah, my sister-in-law has worked for them for about 15 or 20 years as well, so I know they're a very good employer. Mm. Yeah, mm. so... Then let's kick into, <laughs> do you have any strange habits or superstitions? Hmm. Strange habits. I think the only strange habits I may have is that I'm probably a little bit OCD. I've heard this from so many veterans. Yes. <laughs> and when I set up a room, yeah. everything has to be squared on. <laughs> so, you know, if the instrument trolley is at the end of the operating table. Mm-hmm. It must be in equal proportions. <laughs> it must look good, yeah. feel good. Yeah. It has to impress. Yeah. So super t- superstitions, no, I'm not a superstitious person. Yeah. Um, but I do expect excellence from nurses when I was running theatres mm-hmm. and if uh, diathermy was not angled correctly at the top of the table, mm-hmm. I would go and I would straighten it. And I'd say, mm-hmm. that's where I'd like it, please. <laughs> so everything was uniform. Everything was exactly the same. But I think in our discipline, because surgery is unforgiving, mm. and if anything goes wrong, mm. you have significant issues. Mm. So, you know, me having this done, you know, perfectly or beautifully mm. in, in my eyes mm. as a personal thing, um, that would be the only thing that I guess uh, people would say, <gasps> Carol wants to be exactly in this point. Yeah. But it's where the surgeon can reach it. And yeah. it's just have a, a, I guess, a habit of pushing it under the table where the surgeon can't reach it. Yeah. So yeah. you get things on the floor. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm a bit of a hard taskmaster in surgery. It's all for a reason, though. Are mm-hmm. you the same with your suture? Like, mm-hmm. Matt looks like a sewing machine has done his. It's so uniform. Clients yep. ask that, like, was this done by a machine? I'm yeah. like, kind of. Yeah. Well, yeah, we take good pride in uh, in our sutures. And yeah. uh, students will often say to me, oh, Carol, it looks a mess. And I'll say, no, it's fine. It's, you know, it's it's you know, you're going to get better and better learning how much to take in your bites and mm. having it even. So, yes, I am mm. a little bit, um, yeah. uh, should I use the word anal? Is that right? allowed to be said? That's fine. That's um, fine. Yeah, having, having yeah. it done nicely because yeah. uh, that's what your client is going to see and Absolutely. that's what they're going to judge you on. A hundred percent. So, yeah. you know, small incisions as you possibly can get, yeah. suturing looking very, very nice. Yeah. 
you could do all sorts of awful things inside. That's right. But if the outside is looking great, That's it. your client is very, very happy. Yeah. Now, of course, I don't want to see the nasty things inside. I'd rather do yes. a good job inside as well. But it is very important for client relationships yeah. to see that really good look of yeah. those sutures. It's the only way that they can tell, did someone care enough to do this really yes. well? And Matt says that all the time. And oh, he's yeah. only just started letting nurses uh, clip for him. Yeah. He would clip and then they would prep because he wanted even the clipping to be straight and Absolutely. neat and squared. And eventually when one of the nurses was saying she'd like to do that, he said, okay, but you need to do it like this. And mm -hmm. he would sound really anal, but it's for a reason. It the, is absolutely for a reason. looks at that and says, wow, they really cared. They did a great job. And it, it, although they can't see what's underneath, it's a good indicator mm -hmm. if, if this is what the surface looks like. It's an then. absolutely great point, Kat. You know, and this is something I emphasise to the students over and over because, of course, the first time they hear about clipping a patient is from me. Mm. And, um, and I basically start with a nice straight haircut at the top mm -hmm. and go down with the grain of the hair and then backwards, obviously. But I do emphasise it must be absolutely perfect as if you're a hairdresser mm. because, once again, you're going to be judged on that. Mm -hmm. But also, if you're not cutting off enough hair where you ought to mm. and the surgeon, unfortunately, has to extend the incision mm -hmm. and you haven't clipped enough and you haven't done it neatly enough, you've got little frays, mm. um, bits and pieces hanging in your, your field, mm. then they can't extend that incision. Yeah. They've got to stop everything, reclip, and start all over again. Yeah. And even and when you were saying having the bin in a certain position, like yes. it's I call it the tools of the trade and it's it's so important that even in the consult room, I mean, mm. the surgery is really important, but in the consult room, it's so unprofessional if the vet is doing a consult and he goes to reach for the bandage scissors that mm. should be there or the needle driver or the hemostat yeah. or, you know, the or thermometer the or the clippers right. or whatever. Yeah. And, and they go, oh, just a sec, <laughs> yep. I'll be back. And so... So often those things get soiled and they need to be taken away and cleaned, but they got to go back. Like yes. everything that you need has to be exactly where it Absolutely. needs to be. And I think, you know, sometimes the industry forgets that we are a profession yeah. and that profession demands perfection mm. to a certain degree. Mm. And, it, and it comes right down to all those small things mm. and that stands out from the different practices. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's probably one of the things that I'm very – I'm passionate about when I teach mm -hmm. that it must be done this way. Mm -hmm. However, there is always a but. Mm. I'm not right in everything that I do. Mm. But what I do do is with good intention. Mm. And, um, you know, once the students have become a little bit more confident and they mm -hmm. know what the outcome ought to be, and they can change it slightly. They can, you know, that's fine. Yeah. But as long as those principles have been taught. Yeah. So I think the moral of the story is a little bit of OCD for vet nursing is fine. I think a lot of us, a lot to, be on, to be honest with you, yes, because, you know, a lot of nurses think that uh, being a nurse is, is all about cleaning. Well, mm. I refuse to call it cleaning. Mm. To me, it's decontamination mm. um, yeah, because that's what we're really doing. Yeah. We, we are not cleaning. Mm. Yes, it's not like cleaning your dishes at home. Mm. We are decontaminating to mm. ensure that we don't get any um, hospital-born uh, mm. bacterial problems mm. and so when they start thinking of it in that way that's a great little tip for especially junior nurses who are doing mm. a lot of the decontaminating because i listened to another podcast oh i can't even remember what it was when i was binging on them when my son was really little mm. and it was they that someone had done a study on people's workplace satisfaction and people who were really happy in their jobs and they might have looked at for example someone whose job was cleaning in mm. a hospital mm. and they spoke to the person who really didn't like their job doing that and they asked them to describe what they were doing and they'd say emptying the bin collecting any empty cups wiping this down mopping the floor and then they spoke to the person who loved that job and rated it you know 10 out of 10 for how mm. much they loved it and they 
asked, uh, they looked at how they described their job and they mentioned other things like checking in on patients and trying to identify any who didn't have family or visitors and checking in on their mental well-being and giving, you know, a smile or, you know, a little chat. That's a more professional way to look at things. Carol, can you think of a purchase made by by you or your employer that's positively impacted your vet nurse life in recent memory? Okay, well... It's not that recent, but um, we purchased a pre-vacuum steriliser, which was my recommendation. Um, Downward displacement sterilisers are very good. However, they don't do hollow items, and we use a lot of hollow items. Also, pre-vacuum sterilisers are much faster in their turnaround time. So it saved our nurses a lot of time uh, getting the instruments to the surgeons, um, and we knew that we could sterilise virtually anything in there except for heat-sensitive articles. The other thing was uh, an ultrasonic cleaner, um, but it was the size of a fish and chip. Uh, when you go to the fish and chip place and they've got these big vats, um, and that also sped up a lot of our work, mm-hmm. which allowed us, because our CSS staff actually worked not only in CSS, they were also the theatre nurses. So we had to come backwards and forwards. So saving time there was absolutely essential mm-hmm. for us to be able to then service, support, scrub in with our surgeons. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so when you're talking about the ultrasonic cleaner, so are they still the size, are they still massive, or are they quite compact? No, they, they, you can actually get both these days. Mm-hmm. So a bench top is actually quite good. Uh, particularly interesting, it's better for smaller, delicate instruments and box joint instruments. So you still have to do a bit of manual cleaning because you will have gross material on those. Uh, but the ultrasonic cleaner is actually for that fine reduction or in imploding of the dirt between the uh, box joints and the fine instruments. Okay. And does it actually make the instruments last longer because they're not having that abrasive kind of cleaning? Is that the idea behind it? Uh, Not quite so much. Uh, There is an element of that, but Mm -hmm. it's also because the box joint can't be cleaned adequately Mm -hmm. and then you'll get a very stiff instrument. um, We can actually get that debris in between the box joint Mm -hmm. removed by the ultrasonic cleaner, which keeps the instruments in better shape for a longer period of time. So it's it's a little bit correct. Okay. And so when we have those ultrasonic... Uh, cleaners we're still scrubbing in a bucket and then into the ultrasonic cleaner and then uh, we're rinsing them off and then into our autoclave well yeah there's a step there that perhaps most nurses might miss after the um the rinsing off and Mm -hmm. then you having a look at them you're inspecting them to make sure they don't have any damage the scissors are still cutting uh correctly Mm. and everything's in alignment and then you must thoroughly dry your instruments if you don't thoroughly dry your instruments and then put them in the sterilizer you're actually adding additional moisture to the sterilizing load Mm -hmm. and you end up with what's called a wet load and when you have a wet load and you open up your door the atmosphere or the room air goes in and it will allow whatever is in the environment to wick into your instrumentation so the whole load is rendered non-sterile from a theoretical point of view okay we definitely don't want that no we don't (laughs) (laughs) and in terms of what we're putting the kits into what sort of packaging what's your recommendation there okay well there's a variety of them of course um first i'll say what you shouldn't be putting them in and that's tea towels and uh any material that has wide weave. Um, I advocate uh, paper bags for soft items, cotton wool, cotton balls, no sharp items. Um, 
and the downside of paper bags that you can't see what's in those. Yeah. And the second one would be laminates, which is uh, window packs. They can be called window packs from time to time. They're quite good for light instruments. Yeah. Uh, once again, not sharp. Um, for them, they're quite useful for small items. Again, small sets. Uh, then I would go on to your polypropylene wraps or your single-use wraps. Uh, linen, unfortunately, if you think about the size of a weave in polycotton, um, I could demonstrate it to you here, but it's sort of a bit like um, that size, yeah. like the big mouth in that um, fair in St Kilda. And then the size of a microbe is actually, we let's all go on through because we have a bit of moisture mm-hmm. and they just go penetrate straight through. Mm. So my recommendation with that is always to wrap with a polypropylene or similar product mm-hmm. and then put a linen around that if you're getting excess moisture in your um, chamber. Okay, okay. And you and I were discussing um, before that I might need to get a new <laughs> autoclave <laughs> since mine is a relic and pro- probably an old dental yes. autoclave. So um, do you have any favourites there or any recommendations oh look there's quite a number out there these days um and without naming companies which I probably is not quite uh, um, kosher to do that but unless they want to sponsor the podcast absolutely so um <laughs> there are several people um that I work with um mm-hmm. and may I say the name sure Mediquip do yep. a very nice small steriliser bench yep. top and it's a pre-vacuum mm-hmm. so it's made very very well and um, device technologies also do a very nice little steriliser. Mm-hmm. Um, Atherton's do the very large um, hospital size which is what we have. Yep. It's the size of um, a small room wow. to sterilise it so it's got a very big carriage to go in it but those two companies do quite a good little steriliser. And mm-hmm. the other company that I often use is DLC. Okay. So DLC Australia was the original supplier to all our veterinary um, suppliers mm-hmm. um, so they could on-sell things. So those three companies um, give me, uh, I guess, great satisfaction that they do have good products. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, it's what the practice wants. But I would implore you all to make sure that you have a drying cycle on your steriliser no matter what you're purchasing. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's really important. Uh, you were saying as well because of any moisture allowing that's right strike. Is it strike through? Would it's you say strike through? Yeah. Um, some people call it wicking. Yeah. Some people call it strike through. Yeah. They're the same. It's interchangeable. Yeah. Um, and so, because I come from a purist um, sterilizing uh, background, mm-hmm. uh, anything that potentially has um, given rise to a problem, mm-hmm. then the entire um, load is non-sterile and you have to start all over again okay including packaging yeah okay and the other place we see strike through as well um, is uh, when we're prepping patients and they get really wet when we're lathering and scrubbing mm. and prepping and then as soon as we're placing a, a fenestrated drape over the top and there's any moisture and strike mm. through then straight away our sterile field is kind of kind of ruined as well do you have any tips around avoiding that yes absolutely and and once again I recommend single-use draping okay um, I was lucky enough to be involved with a company called DeFreeze and I designed veterinary drapes and um, packages for them back in the day. Um, you don't necessarily have to use that company. There are still cat lap drapes out there called the Bradley Cat, dra- cat Lap Drape. Um, but I believe that 
disposable ought to be there now. Linen really doesn't have a place in veterinary science. Some hospitals or some clinics think that linen is cheaper, but when you actually do the math and you add up the costs associated with reprocessing a reusable gown, for instance, Mm. and you compare it to a $5 disposable, which is guaranteed to be sterile, Mm. um, it's around about $20 to reprocess a reusable gown. Yeah. And you're also not actually um, in a sterile gown. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't prove it because the strike through mm. is is very high. Mm. Um, so once again, I think it's getting out there that disposable is the way to go. Um, yeah. And linen does have a small place. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a false economy to say that mm-hmm. reusable is cheaper than disposable. Yeah, yeah. I've talked to another guest about this, about just getting our head around the um, the environmental impact of that, like oh, seeing yes. things like that going in the bin. Like, Absolutely, yes. But, I mean, I guess you also have to look at it's it's easy to to pretend there's no environmental impact of washing and rewashing all these drapes, but at the end of the day we're still washing chemicals down the drain. And Absolutely. So I did a study, um, gee, as you know, it's been many years I've been in, in the industry, so let's just say a long time ago, mm-hmm. and um, I started looking at the environmental aspects of oh, wow. both. And I came across a Kimberly Clark study, and the conclusion was they're both poisons, and yeah. it's a matter of choosing which poison you sit more comfortably with. Mm-hmm. So if you talk about reprocessing, we are adding, we are using water, we're using coal, we are using manpower, mm. electricity, and we're putting detergents in our rivers. Mm. If you use... Um, Uh, disposables or single use we are incinerating Mm. and so we are putting things in the atmosphere alternative to that we may be putting them in landfill Mm. and they do break down it does take a very long time but australia has a lot of space for landfill Mm. um good or bad that is probably the better way to go in my opinion Mm. um because it will break down and then you have to ask yourself the question if you are offering sterile surgery are you actually doing sterile surgery when you're using linen? Mm. So it comes mm. down to where where do you want to sit with this? Mm. So equally poisonous, mm. different types of poisons. And it took me a long time to actually come to terms and a lot of self-reflection on what was I trying to achieve? How best can I achieve that with mm. without harming the environment too much? Mm. And and I went with the disposable because then I could guarantee that this item was sterile and I could say and look in my surgeon's face and say, this item I'm giving you is sterile. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that's amazing. You have actually looked into it far more than I had even um, hoped you might have an answer <laughs> to. So that actually makes me feel a lot better. Yes, well, I was mm. very lucky um, – when I first started, um, we were using uh, pervidine iodine for skin preps. Mm-hmm. And I really did not like the way that the industry was preparing our patients. So once again, I did a, research, a study. Mm-hmm. And um, today, the standard that I see in most hospitals mimics the one that I created back in the University of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've all gone to chlorhexidine simply because it has residual action mm. and it works in organic material. So mm. I've been lucky to be involved in a lot of things that have changed the uh, practices that we do in veterinary science. Tell me about a time when you were able to turn defeat into victory. This could be in a personal or professional capacity. Oh, my goodness, there's so many. Um, <laughs> wow, you've got me with that one. Um Okay, this might sound a little bit confrontational. However, um, we had a new anaesthetist in, in the vet school at Werribee. We have um, an, 
are separate anaesthetists mm -hmm. and they wanted to leave anaesthesia machines in the operating theatre um, and just move them about whenever they wanted to. Uh, being the kind of person that I am and looking at decontamination, I could see that there was going to be a problem with the anaesthetic machines being left there because nobody would clean them. Mm -hmm. Um, so we had a lot of debate backwards and forwards about what ought to be in the operating theatres. What do we keep in there and what do we let out? So um, there was a little bit of a triumph for me, I suppose, in that um, my head of surgery said, it's Carol's butt that gets kicked if there is an infection issue. Mm. And so um, not just that situation, but many situations, it was nice to be given that, um, I guess, um, authority to say, this is what I believe, and if we have this anaesthetic machine and no one's going to be cleaning it, mm. then we are inviting trouble. Mm. Whereas if it was in a different location, what we call a prep room, mm. there was somebody assigned to clean it. Mm -hmm. um, so that was something that I, I thought was, was good, that um, nurses could say things in the operating theatre should not be some things need to be housed there, but things mm -hmm. that are going out should not be housed there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. And just being listened to as well. and Absolutely. And being yeah. validated, to be yeah. honest with you. And uh, it's um, it's very validating if you've got your evidence to back you up. And I had my evidence mm. um, from the Australian Standard 4187 and, mm -hmm. and other documents. I actually follow um, AORM, which is the Association of Operating Room Nursing mm -hmm. uh, in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of guidelines in there. Mm -hmm. So I use those things. Um, but there was a little bit of personal that came into that because the person who wanted to do it was um, not going to be cleaning those uh, anesthetic machines. Yeah, that's right. And I think you touched on a really good point there, which is that you had your research done. So mm. I think that's a great message for vet nurses. If you want to approach your vet or your, um, your practice manager or the business owner and say, I think we should do this instead of this, or I think we mm. should use these instead of those. You Absolutely. really got to have your research yeah. first and you've got to say, look, I can flick you an email if you want with a bunch mm. of um, research attached yep. to it. I mean, or, you know, I can print it out for you. I've highlighted some areas, mm. but you can't just go, we should do this. Absolutely. I've, and this is what I teach to nurses now. I never go with an issue without mm. having some idea of what the solution may be. Yeah. If you go to your boss and say, I don't think this is good, but you can't express why mm. it isn't good and you don't have that evidence to back you up. It's going to be possibly knocked on the head. Yeah. So if you go with that, then, you know, we've got many things that nurses can use today. You've got mm. Google Scholar, which is free for all downloads of research and teaching. Mm. So, yeah, I never say that um, you should just go with a problem and ask somebody else to fix it for you. That's right. And if you want to – I mean, there are a lot of things that are less than ideal in our industry, but it's one thing to just criticise and go, this needs to be better, but mm. it's a, it's another whole level to say, this this needs to be better. I've had to think about it. Mm. Um, here are some options. So, yeah. yeah. And, and in some practices, of course, there's a wide uh, different types of practices out there. So sometimes you need to do the best you can do given mm. the circumstances that you have. That's right. Um, you cannot be maybe a teaching school standard because mm. of this, this and this. Yeah. But then you try and meet it somewhere in the middle. That's right. And that's something that I have to reconcile when I go to conferences and I learn or hear about gold standard levels mm. of care. And then I go back to my practice in regional far north Queensland. Yes. And clients have a limit to what they're going to pay for services and we need to sort of cater for that, yes. I guess. And we have limited resources, but you still need to try and provide the, the, the best that you can, but yes. not beat yourself up if that's not going to And be. you must be able to defend your process. 
Yes. So defending your process, and I mean that in a different way, is that you can say, well, we're doing this because we can't get a total hip set mm. uh, down from, you know, Brisbane or something like that, um, but we're going to actually put a plate on this and we're going to do a buttress plate or whatever it is that you're going to do. Yeah. So you can always defend your processes. That's it, yeah. Well, I think it's time that we take a short break, even though I just want to keep hearing more and more from you. You're right if we come back in a minute? Absolutely. Excellent. Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from Zilking. It's a supplement for cats and dogs that can help with stressful or unpredictable situations. You know the ones, thunderstorms, travel, multi-cat households, all those triggers. Zilking contains alpha because to help keep the animal calm. It's the same molecule that helps keep newborns calm after breastfeeding. It's palatable and easy to give. I mix it into my dog's food. Some behavioural issues are severe and Zilkeen probably won't help these, but it works well for many pets in stressful situations. Worth a try, right? Welcome back, Carol. Now, what advice would you give to someone about to enter the world of vet nursing? Oh, wow, so much. Uh, I think uh, in the first instance, um, I would be, you know, obviously very enthusiastic and open to listening. Um, there is a little bit of a trend for young nurses getting into the industry and wanting to pretend they know everything. Yes. And <laughs> it's it's okay not to know things. I mean, mm. I could not tell you anything about flea control today. Mm-hmm. Uh, all my work has been surgery. Mm. Um, so come in and listen to your seniors, mm. but act professionally. Mm. Um, it's not there just to have fun and, you know, um, play with all the animals. Mm. It is a science-based discipline. Mm-hmm. Don't be frightened to ask questions, mm. but don't be frightened not to know anything. Yeah, I think that's great advice because to me that is the most dangerous employee I can have is one that um, they might start, you know, with caution because they know they don't know much, but then once they get a few subjects in and they start to think, oh, I've got this, and then Absolutely. they don't get someone when, you know, a patient mm. is in a situation that they actually don't understand very well and um, that it's a really important thing to be able to say is I don't know and you will not annoy anyone around no. you by asking for help. And when you do ask, though, you need to be respectful. I um, always say to the, some of the nurses I've taught, look at someone you admire and see how they operate and emulate them. Um, For me, I had the most wonderful people to follow. I had uh, surgical icons, Bruce Christie, Glenn Edwards, Wingtip Wong, and the three of those men, um, I guess, formulated the kind of person I am today. Mm -hmm. Nothing was beneath them to do. They would do the cleaning up and things like that. So Mm. you need to be prepared. Somebody's dropped something on the ground. It doesn't matter what level you're at, Mm. pick it up. Yeah. You're a team. So, um, and then use that mentor. Yeah, and mentors are fantastic and I've talked about them with other guests mm. too. And um, and like we said before, it's all nursing. Whatever yes. it is, it is all nursing. So absolutely. don't be looking around going, but why don't I get to do that? You, because you're busy nursing. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and what advice would you give to a student vet nurse struggling with their studies? And I should mention mm. that you're still a student today. You've <laughs> yes. just started a postgrad, is it? That's right. I'm doing a postgrad certificate with Griffith University. Mm. I, you know, I believe in lifelong learning mm-hmm. um, and I knew this was going to be a challenge for me um and so uh it's part-time I can do it from home Mm -hmm. I must admit I've had four o'clock in the morning situations Mm. a few times uh but I'm thoroughly enjoying it Mm -hmm. and I think for all nurses if you do your certificate of nursing that's great but don't stop Mm. keep on learning even Mm. if it's a short course Mm -hmm. even if it's a communication course Mm. is it how to be a leader course Mm. um 
you, lifelong learning truly is the best thing for our brains and for mm-hmm. our advancement and our development. So mm-hmm. never give up. I totally agree. So just continue and and don't just see. Uh, and I think that can help nurses who are looking towards the end of their cert four of I'll never get there. And well, mm. if if you look at it in another way of you know this is just one thing that you're going to study. So study is just an everyday part of your life. Yes, it's the same as you know. A crash diet is no good. You need to change the way mm. you eat every day. And so there's one piece of advice I would give a nurse who's doing study. I think we forget that you actually have to learn how to study again. Yeah. So learning how to study is very important. Mm. And you can Google this and get all sorts of tips on, mm. well, how do I study? What should I be doing? How do I take my notes? Mm. Should I take notes? How do I remember all this stuff? Mm. There is a plethora of information online Mm. that can teach you how to study again Mm. and I strongly encourage you to do that before you undertake any study yeah absolutely I was just um really on top of my game I remember when I finished year 12 I had timetables and timers and Mm. practice papers and would take my notes down from long form to short form because I I would learn by writing and then Mm. going over but I would you know practice a lot and then yeah you do have to learn again and go oh that's right there was a lot Mm. of work and strategy that went Mm. into that it wasn't just you know read the notes and do the assignments so you you can't learn by you know can't memorize everything it's just it isn't uh, learning these days is not just by memorizing everything Mm. and um, I only went to year 10 which Mm is form four back in my day Mm -hmm. so I didn't complete my high school um, certificate Mm. but I got around it in different ways and did Mm. lots of other courses Mm -hmm. and um, so if you can't get through in one way look to get around it in another way Mm. and um, you know and then share your knowledge Mm. knowledge is not something to be kept that only you can actually Mm. use it's meant to be shared and taught to others so true Mm. I now you have a qualification listed here and I don't even understand how you got it Mm. um because I don't know what it is (laughs) (laughs) it is that you were made um associate fellow is it that's right and that was through the Royal Veterinary College London so it's associate fellow in the higher education academy how did that happen okay so um I wanted I was already teaching I had been teaching for a very long time um, and I, I had actually done my cert for in um, I've forgotten the name of the certificate actually but it's it's uh, oh yeah the the training yes uh, the workplace training workplace and training assessment. Assessment. Yeah. and I introduced a different learning style to the students and it worked extremely well and, and my colleagues the other academics I wasn't an academic at that time went whoa Carol the students really love that And so I thought I would explore um, how to teach veterinary science. So this was the very first course ever offered on how to teach veterinary education. So um, despite not having a degree, I was very lucky to get a very good um, recommendation to be allowed into the course. So it it starts off as a certificate um, and then it goes right up to master's. Mm -hmm. And so it was online, which was difficult because you don't have anybody to bounce things off. And Mm. I would be the computer in the middle of the table in London at two o'clock in the morning doing journal club. But I enjoyed it thoroughly. So Mm. I went as far as I could. How do you teach? What do you want your audience to have? How can you make it, uh, how can you get buy-in from your students? Mm -hmm. And and how do you present your materials? Mm. So it's really all about how do we teach veterinary education? Wow. A lot of 
it is surrounded with reflective writing and reflective thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I believe I was the first veterinary nurse in Australia to do that. Wow. Um, I'm not quite sure if anybody else has done it. I did not go on to my master's for several reasons, but mm-hmm. mostly children at home and being up in the morning was not really doing my health much good Mm. Uh, but I got as far as I should and needed to be Mm. and it's been invaluable. Mm. It's just um, it's so impressive um, to to have that as well so congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah and are there any bad or old recommendations that you hear in our industry or as a vet nurse um, that Mm. you think could be replaced with more useful or modern information? Yes absolutely. Um, I think the one that comes out Oh, back to me many, many times is uh, skin preps mm-hmm. and they use chlorhexidine to do mm-hmm. one part of the skin prep and then they apply povidine iodine. Mm-hmm. Now, um, if you think about those two chemicals, chlorhexidine is a cationic and povidine iodine is an anionic and they both cancel each other out. Mm-hmm. So there could be some uh, issue with not the skin not being prepared properly. There's been one study on pig mucosa that combined those two and it was quite successful. However, there's only been one study and mm-hmm. it was pig mucosa. And if you look at manufacturer's instructions, um, the chlorhexidine manufacturers say you cannot mix it, whereas povidine iodine will say you can mix them. Right. So we're getting conflicting information. Mm. Um, so I go back to the good old chemistry, mm-hmm. cationic, anionic, cancels, I don't use it. Mm -hmm. So um, that's one thing. And the other one is tape or coloured tape put around instrumentation. Yes. Um, That's a really bad one. It Mm. certainly was in the 90s, early 90s. It was Mm. accepted for identification. Mm. However, since that time, a lot of clinical research has gone into it. And the tape and particularly the adhesive under the tape harbours bacteria. Mm. You can't clean underneath it and you cannot sterilise underneath Mm. it. In addition, it starts to get loose. And if you drop a piece in, say, a patient's abdomen, mm. you've got a foreign body in there. Yeah. So I don't advocate um, coloured identification tape anymore. But what I do advocate, and most in- instrument manufacturers will do this for you, they will actually um, etch it. Oh, so yes. it's not actually um, into the passivation layer. It's yeah. actually etched and it's done professionally so you don't damage the instrument's passivation yeah. layer, which actually keeps the instrument from rusting. That's a good idea. I also think uh, sometimes it can just take away the need to think, to be yes. like, this is the blue kit, this yes. is the green kit, I'm glad this you is said the red that. kit. Like, use, mm. use your mind. <laughs> I am so pleased you said that mm. because certainly uh, myself and my team um, intimately knew every single instrument mm. in every single pack. And at the university, we would probably have 20 types, mm. and that's not counting our implants and things like that. Um, and so, you know, you had to really know what should be in there, mm. what did it look like, mm. and um, how was it used. Mm. So for me, I can reel off any set you like. It's still there. Uh, but today, the coloured tape is there, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a way of losing some knowledge that you should have. Like, That's right. What is an LS tissue faucet? Mm. How is it used? That's right. Yeah. Like, what's it used for? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that has made a lot of nurses uh, a little bit complacent mm. in identification of instrumentation. And even just uh, questioning, well, should this instrument still be in this kit or does Absolutely. it need to, is it blunt, you know, is it damaged, yes. rather than just going, well, this is the one with the blue tape, so Absolutely. it's going back in. Absolutely. Because so, often you have 
um, so many different, you know, Alice tissue forceps or mm. radies or whatever. And so mm. you can look and go, this one actually looks better. Yes. And replace it. So, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I think part, part of my, um, I guess, uh, I was proud to know every single instrument mm. and uh, I could reel off all the orthopedic instruments, what it did, what bone it applied to. Mm. Um, and so uh, during my career, I used to actually teach the interns how to put their implants in, mm. how to select their impa- implants and screws and things like that. Um, so having that knowledge, and I don't mean this badly, is power. It is, yeah. It, that power gives you um, valid uh, ad- ad- adding, you know, so... Mm. I really implore nurses to actually know their instruments and what they do. And when you're standing at the end of that table and that surgeon is doing something and appears to be struggling, you can say to them, hey, would you like to use the Send Miller? That's right, yeah. yeah. So it adds value and it saves time. Or if you're doing a, an, an unexpected orthopaedics case and mm. the, the vet's consulting all morning, you can get what you think will be needed. Absolutely. And then say, this is what's in there that's currently cooking yep what else do you need exactly and they can just say oh that's everything or okay add this or add that yeah so yeah um and i i think that um that for vet nurses that are learning this go in with your textbook with the pictures of the instruments at a time that surgery is not happening Mm -hmm. and on on your day off and say can i have a can i touch and feel and look at the Mm. instruments and that's how you learn them too absolutely and so many nurses um i shouldn't say so many there are some nurses who think they should be learning those things on the job Mm. you never get ahead if that's what your expectation is you must do that uh, in your own time Agreed. to actually you know, forge forward and mm. make a real career out of it instead of just a job. Yeah. Um, so if you drive yourself, that's where you'll get success. I'm really glad you said that. And you don't go from kennel maid to what you're doing without doing that. And there's just not the time always to learn on the job. It would be lovely. But mm. then um, if there was time to do that, we, the business wouldn't be making enough money to employ you. So. <laughs> Absolutely. You're really just investing in yourself by doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree totally. And in what ways do you look after your mental well-being and prevent compassion fatigue? Ah, well, I think we're always compassionate. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess I do things like um, sit quietly, spend time with my children. I'm, I did, you know, admit to you earlier that I'm an amateur, very amateur guitar player. <laughs> so I have a little music room I've got set up and yeah. I'll sit there and I'll strum away and um, just lay back and sh- spend time with friends and just don't talk shop. Yeah, that's an important rule, isn't it? And yep. um, I think with, with my husband and I both being in the industry, sometimes mm. we really have to pull ourselves up and be like, we're on holiday. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, my, my wife is actually a, a specialist online e-learning okay. person, so she creates programs. Okay. So um, we both just go bang, down tools, yeah. and we'll go to gold class, you know, little things like yeah. that or just – Keep in touch with friends yeah. because when you are focused as much as we are in our roles, we can tend to forget our friends. So we just, you know, you've got to whip around and go back to them. Yeah, that's it. Just the simple things. And and sometimes as well, it's easy to, I feel anxious when I'm trying to make time for friends. I think, oh, yeah. we don't have time. I've got to do this, this and this. And then I'm mm. when I'm in that environment with them, I think, oh, yeah. why was I even I know. beginning to think, oh, maybe I should pull out of this. Like you just have to commit and make yep. time and go. The other trick I learned, though, uh, and it was actually my wife who gave me this advice, uh, every party I went to, people say, well, what do you do? And I'd proudly mm. say, this is what I do. 
Um, so now I no longer tell people what I do because mm-hmm. then I'm not doing consultations the entire party. Yes, we <laughs> we do that too. Yeah. <laughs> we'll walk into a certain environment and Matt will just be like, don't tell anyone no. what we do. <laughs> we'll be, what do you do? I'm a public servant. Yeah, I work in government. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no offence, government workers. <laughs> no, 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 no. I love government workers. Um, and if you ever feel overwhelmed about life or work, what do you do? Ah. Uh, talk it out Mm. I talk it out I find the person who's going to understand my issues Mm. and that person will just let me go blah Mm. not necessarily fix it for me Mm. I just want somebody to listen yeah so that's what I do I find someone um, that will just let me talk Mm. and it's something I'm a mentor at at the faculty and Mm -hmm. um and a lot of nurses will come to me and they'll just go, Bleh. they don't want me to fix it. Mm. It's just something they just need to get out. Yeah. And so a sympathetic ear is very important for me. Yeah. Um, and so there are f- several people who, who will allow me to do that. Yeah, those people in your life are just gold, aren't Absolutely. they? Absolutely. And yep. you can almost just talk yourself out of whatever it is. Like you don't yeah. really need a solution. You just no. need to lay it out to someone and have someone react naturally and yep. go, oh, God, that sounds full on. Yeah, and, and often by talking about it, you end up, with the resolution yourself yeah yeah that's excellent advice and what do you think is the main area of our industry that needs attention or improvement oh wow uh yep i think better recognition of veterinary nurses for a start Mm -hmm. that comes number one i think registration of veterinary nurses is really key Mm -hmm. and um acknowledgement of the work that we do that we are in partnership with you know vets and we are very Mm -hmm. key to it um I don't know if we're ever going to get there, but better pay conditions. Oh, yeah. Better yeah. pay conditions. And, uh, you know, I think the nurses, you think about all the skills that vet nurses have to have mm. compared to our human counterparts, mm. and they're paid quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just not recognised enough, and I think that's only going to come with time and publicity. Yeah, and I think about the pay conditions a lot, and that's mm. why in this podcast too I also try to interview people who have taken their vet nursing in other directions like yourself yes. because I think for a lot of nurses they look for an exit at some point because they're working really hard mm. for not great money. Mm. But as a business owner too, I know that the answer isn't just – pay nurses more the answer is probably to be able to charge more yes for our services which is by educating the public as well as Mm. to the value but it's also I think to learn to streamline our businesses and Mm. be more efficient yes so we're not you know wasting money on anything that's double handling Mm. or you know just sort of streamlining so that there Mm. can be more room in the bottom line I guess to to give more money to their nurses so yeah I mean there's also um different career paths Mm. You know, you have research, you have sales, you have um, academia that you can aspire to. Mm. You can do uh, workshops for other nurses. That's right. Work with the AVNA, Mm. um, ask to do conferences. Mm. Um, You know, just get yourself out there if you're really keen and show your brand Mm. um, and use that brand to your Mm. advantage. And yes, the money does come. That's it. And it is the world nowadays is the age of the side hustle and the personal brand. Absolutely. Um, And you can do that. And a lot of nurses really struggle with losing their identity if they're not doing active nursing or clinical mm. nursing but you can um you can start doing your side hustle and just cut down a little bit on your hours and see how it goes yes. and you don't have to commit and you can do both things or you can go no actually I really like this yes. and I'm enjoying academia or I'm enjoying being a rep or and you can combine them you know this you is can. the beauty of our careers we can mm. combine clinical nursing as well as something else on the side to supplement or you know challenge you mm. so 
yeah, there's, there's limitless yeah. opportunities. I was very lucky within my career that um, looking after the theatres for 20-odd years, um, I got asked to be involved in research. Mm. So um, I was involved in the first um, ventricle-assisted uh, device for sheep, which is now in humans, um, you know, vascular conduits, heart transplants, all those mm. sorts of things. And that took me off to another area that's actually brought value back mm-hmm. to what I do mm-hmm. um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it mm-hmm. but I do enjoy now I'm just I'm not just I'm teaching yeah uh, that's my main job mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's allowed me to just sit back a little but just keep on studying and keep mm-hmm. on learning so think outside the square when it comes to our careers and mm. the sky's the limit, really. Yes, it's all up to you. Mm. Mm. Well, I've so enjoyed chatting with you. I've got one more question, even though I feel like I could pick your brain for days. But <laughs> I think I'm going to limit myself. If you could reach out and thank a mentor who's helped you in your career and personal development in the veterinary industry, who would it be and what would you say? Okay. Um, can I say three people? You can. Okay. I would say Bruce Christie. Mm-hmm. Um, you may need to look him up because he's retired now. He was the first man or clinician who gave me license to actually fly with my career. Mm-hmm. He gave me autonomy. Um, the second one would be Glenn Edwards, who is, was also head of surgery. And he also, his his personality was one that I emulated. Mm-hmm. He was honest, played with a straight bat, as he often used to call it. Uh, nothing was too below him. Everybody was an equal member of the team and he he, um, he treated everybody with kindness. Mm. And then there's Wingtip Wong, in my opinion, the best orthopedic surgeon that I've ever worked with. Mm-hmm. Uh, he brought me um, humility, mm-hmm. uh, how to be humble and uh, learn, but you don't necessarily keep it to yourself, you share it. Mm. And they are my three icons. Um, and I know they're veterinarians, uh, but... Um, there's been many people in my life and um, I suppose because of them, I've been a bit of a trailblazer. Mm. Uh, but they gave me the the support to do that. Mm. And I think a lot of nurses name vets as their mentors, but I think it's, you know, why not? It's that perfect, yes. um, that perfect I call it a, a symbiotic relationship when it's working because mm. you're assisting and elevating the vet in their performance and they're yes. assisting you in yours. And yes. um, thank goodness you had these people who let you have a go because yeah. you are living proof that you can be a kennel maid and then yeah. uh, end up, you know, teaching the future vets of, of mm. Australia um, in, you know, in surgical technique and yes. aseptic technique and yeah. you're teaching vet nurses as well and um, and you're definitely sharing that education. I hope so. Not keeping it to yourself. I think there'd be one more person I would probably say has had a bit of influence and she probably doesn't know this, but it's Jane Bindloss. Mm-hmm. Um, I attended initial meetings with Jane and uh, her quiet supportive demeanor impressed me mm-hmm. and so I've always had that in the back of my mind so mm-hmm. that's my veterinary nursing um, inspiration yeah and you say that you said that you're a bit of a, a mother hen to the vet students when they get to you and they need to pass their big time. their hurdle and everything so yeah big time yeah it's yeah. really important I think to let people be at ease and relax in order yeah. to get through those stressful situations mm. and a great um, a great thing for our senior nurses to know in helping our juniors through or helping yeah. the new grad vets as Absolutely. we said as well so yeah 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 
Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so glad I came to Melbourne and got to meet you and hear about your amazing career. We could fill up multiple podcasts, but we have had to to limit it. So people, I think, will still get a great idea of the amazing career you've had. And it sounds like you're, you know, you're still um, learning amazing things every day. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you, Kat. It's been wonderful. Thanks, Carol. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast. To help us make more free episodes, subscribe and leave a review. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Radio Vet Nurse or drop in at radiovetnurse.com.